0: on the Google Play or App Store, or visit them online at fishingbooker.com to book your trip today. Outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems.
1: Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. Simply pour a can in your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on Seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. Pick up a can of Seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit SeafoamWorks.com to learn more. Welcome back to Cutting the Distance, where I continue my conversation with Dr. Bronson Strickland. He's a professor of wildlife management at Mississippi State University. He's the co-director of MSU's Deer Lab and co-host of the Deer University podcast. If you'd like to go back and listen to part one, we cover listener questions on at what age should you start making decisions on buck management? What year round food strategy should you be employing for the healthiest deer? As well as some of my own questions on genetic potential, nutrients, mother's health and environmental factors and how those all add up to, to a buck's potential and how you go about managing those for better herd health. If you enjoy this conversation with Dr. Bronson Strickland, make sure to go back and check out part one if you haven't already. All right, we're gonna digress um, from dough management a little bit, and uh, this this will be a little more universal amongst all areas. I know the times may change, but you know you you hear everybody with their systems like this is how these are the phases of the rut. This is I'm gonna ask you to kind of break down you know whether it's the beginning of September, or shoot you, you know down in the south you guys are probably going you know the rut you know parts or portions of the rut go all the way into January. Break down kind of what you feel are, you know, major milestones in, in buck behavior, you know, throughout the rut, you know, starting in September, ending in late January. Um, and I know it's going to change a little bit based on, you know,
2: where you're at. If you don't mind, I'm going to back it up another month and include August, uh, August, September, uh, that is when bucks are typically still within their bachelor groups. And so they they are tolerant of one another. They are typically still in velvet or coming out of velvet. And biologically, what is going on there is the, the level of testosterone in their bloodstream. So bucks tolerate each other when they're in velvet because testosterone levels are very, very low. So when the velvet shedding process begins, that is when testosterone begins to spike. That is when antler hardening happens. And that is also when these bachelor groups start breaking up because... They don't want to look at their buddy anymore. They just want to fight. And so that is when they're going to go back and back to probably the previous fall, the area that, that they occupied and that home range. Typically, let's just say now uh, in the southeast, if, if you peak your ruts end of November or December, then you have a, a couple months to where those bucks are again going to be setting up their, their social hierarchies. They're gonna be refamiliarizing themselves with their territory. And then when you start getting about three weeks, two weeks, etc., before the peak of the rut, that is when you're gonna see the, the most scraping activity. That's when they're they're running their trap line and, and, and they're putting their calling card out there on the landscape. And that is typically, Jason, when most people think that the peak of the rut is. Most often that is the pre-rut that hunters think is the peak of the rut the peak of the rut is going to be two to three weeks later when there's going to be less visible deer activity because bucks are engaged in courting does so they're they're locked up and then that's going to go on if you're up north it might be two to three weeks if you're in the south it might be about a month and then after that 80 90 percent of your does have been bred and then bucks are going to start focusing on uh rebuilding their their tissue they've lost 10 15 20 percent of their body weight that's when we see them focusing back on food again so that's a good hunter's tip right there is you always include food in the equation after the peak of the rut um, and then they'll start taking advantage of those stragglers it might be a doe fawn that's coming into heat for the first time it could be an adult doe that was bred during the peak of the rut but for whatever reason just like humans she was bred but didn't conceive and become pregnant 30 days later she's going to cycle and come back into heat again so that's when you'll see that that trickle or that second rut is occurring then
1: yeah thanks for thanks for breaking that down we got to hunt Kansas kind of I'd say right on the front end of lockdown, and it was a little bit frustrating. Those guys like to kill their their bigger bucks. I would, you know, October fifteenth to thirtieth, and maybe even earlier because they're more patternable. They they're mm-hmm. starting to, you know, like the like you said, they're they're scraping pre-rut, they're marking their territory, they're still somewhat patternable, and then when we got there, like it's very very fun to hunt the rut, but. The deer that were on cams a week ago just were gone. They they had found a doe, ran her off somewhere. Didn't care to be out. And like I say it's a it's a little bit of a love hate. Like I love being out there during the rut, but it was also like, hey, Randy, we have uh, all these pictures of bucks on camera. Like they're around. Like we would see them maybe one of the four or five days, but then they were just you know off again. They'd get on a yeah. doe and and, and them take off. So no, I, thanks for breaking that rut down. That, that helps you know me understand kind of those phases versus you know some of these people out there have got twenty eight phases of the rut. Uh, you know, like they're gonna between this day. I'm like, well, I, that's so hard to manage. You know, if, if you can break it down to like you, just a few phases, like you said, and, and what you should be focusing on, uh, makes it makes it a little easier for a hunter to, to not
2: have to think that hard. <laughs> and,
1: and that's on. what's
2: that's what's fun uh, about the rut, but can also be frustrating. Is what we we think about the rut, and true anything can happen. I think that the rut equal random. Anything can happen any time of the day. Uh, but, but at the same time, you're, you, you don't have that reliability and the patterns that are, that are established. So, but Jason, if you were going to see, if, if now you were going to be that person to shoot the neighbor's buck <laughs> that they've been managing all these years, it's probably going to be during the peak of the run. Yeah.
1: yeah, That's yeah, it's a one time you could, if you had a doe that crosses on, yeah, you can pull it in. And, yeah. and I, you know, I, I, I'm very, um, you know, curious. So I asked all kinds of questions. Randy probably got Randy and, and Chris Parrish was uh, hunting with us there at the place at the same time. And, you know, ask those guys that have spent a lot more time in a whitetail stand, these same questions, like, what are the chances, you know, have you guys killed bucks that, and, and they, the numbers seem to be low, like it can happen, but they said, you know, Randy's couple properties are, you know, a couple hundred acres a piece scattered about. And, you know, very rarely does he say they, they end up with a buck that they didn't cut, you know, know about it does happen, but but not very mm-hmm. often. You know, usually, they know what's there. They, they don't. They don't have the scragglers. But you know, I, I also see the advantages. I'm looking for property there, like you can get the right 80 acres and you know, a, a smaller piece with different landowners, and the, the, the probability of killing a buck that's not on your place probably goes up tremendously um, because you can't hold all those deer all right. the time. And you're, um, that makes sense. <laughs> Attention. Yeah,
2: and, and you know, you getting back to the whole uh, patterning deer, you know, the, the, the one thing that you can never account for, and that is these excursions. And it's these things that, uh, you know, uh, as a researcher, I didn't put a lot of faith into when, when hunters were reporting this a decade or more ago, evidence they were getting from trail cameras. Uh, we've never seen this buck, and he was here for a week or two weeks, and then he was gone. And then a year later... At the exact same time, I mean, literally down to the week or three days, like this buck is back again, I didn't buy into any of that. I was like, there's no biological reason for that to occur. But when you put a GPS collar on a bunch of bucks, that does occur. Absolutely happens. Yeah, I, I, I think Mark Drury, had he called a buck, you know, he had the same thing. It would
1: disappear like almost to the date and then wouldn't come back until the fall and then didn't even come back one year at all. And it's just, to me, that's mind-boggling. And, and I'm going to ask you a question I'm sure you're probably – Maybe you'll have the answer. Like, is there any understanding on what just makes that buck say, you know, what, I'm going to pop up today and go a mile away on a different farm, just completely leave an area I've been for the last
2: nine months? Um, I, that, that that That's a tough one. You know, so we think of, um, I guess I think of it as short term, long term, you know, in the short term, could there be some kind of cue like I, I'm, I'm getting a whiff of an estrus dough, so I'm going to move. Man, I'm hungry. You know, I'm not getting what I need. There's a whole bunch of hunting pressure right here, so so I'm gonna leave. I, I would call those you know short term, but but then we also Jason have some longer terms where why every single year on November 17th does this buck get up and move five miles away? We got a buck in, in Mississippi that in February every year, he leaves Mississippi, swims the Mississippi River, and spends his summer in Louisiana. Now, now tell me why. <laughs> Try to be logical about that. Why invoke all this risk moving that far and swim in the river? And, and then come August, that same buck moves right back to Mississippi and spends his hunting season over here yeah I, I don't know yeah i don't no know idea. i think it
1: all i think it all be speculation unless you know we could somehow figure that out you know i me wanting to have an answer you know as a, as an engineer I, there should be an answer to everything so you know what goes through my mind is like is, were they at four and a half was he not that you know they're going to definitely be in the rut but maybe there was a a pecking order issue. And then by five and a half, he's like, well, I'm mature enough. And there's another buck that's hanging around here that just won't give me the chance. And I'm, I'm going to go find my own spot where maybe there, there isn't a more, ma-. you know, it's like we could speculate all day long why he does it, but it's just yeah. always intriguing on how you could have such consistent, you know, patterns on a deer. And then just, you know, that excursion takes place. Or like you said, a deer that swims a river at a certain time and comes back, it's just, yeah, I, I guess that's, that's what makes it fun. They do things because they're deer, and, and we may never that's understand right.
2: why, why they do it. We, we think, and we have no way to prove this, of, of course, but we, we kind of think it's, uh, a, a biologist would call it kind of a, a vestigial trait. It's just something buried pretty deep in their genome. I, I just think there's a fraction of deer, just like within human beings, there's a fraction of humans hundreds of years ago that wanted to be explorers. They're risk takers. The grass is always greener. They're going for the gold, etc. And they're willing to risk their life to do it. And white-tailed deer, we always say they're a colonizing species. They're always, you know, moving, expanding, looking for the better food, better cover, etc. And I think there's just always a small fraction of individuals, and in this case bucks, that are just willing to pick up and move. But I can't say it's even just just bucks. This was... Uh, Definitely exacerbated by floodwaters adjacent to the Mississippi River. We, we had a doe also pick up and move 20 miles away and set up camp. So it, it happens with both of them. That that's crazy. That's starting to get comparable to the the western like winter
1: migrations. You know, at the point they're right. moving that far. And yeah, like I say, it's all speculation. Another thought is like, you know, when is that where he was born? Where his mom, you know, it's like and and he moved off and just is coming back. Well, we may never know. So I'm gonna digress because we could yeah. probably talk in circles on that one all day. Um, the next one is a western hunter. Um, you know, an elk hunter that's on the ground trying to get very very close. You know, wind is always key, but. To to piggyback on wind is scent. Um, you know, being a, a brand new whitetail hunter, one of my biggest things what you know, these the whitetail hunters are, you know, they're spraying their clothes with all this stuff. They've got some sort of scent locker, scent crusher, some sort of a, a cabinet with ozone in it. You know, I'm like watching what seems to me as a Western hunter is a little bit crazy because we just like ah, I I have to breathe. I'm gonna sweat to death out here in the west, climbing mountains. I'm just gonna keep the wind in my face at all times. But stand hunting it was very obvious that you can't get into your stand. You can't protect the wind at all times. You got deer on the ground. You're letting them come to you. So wind and, and scent becomes a little bit, you, you're, I don't want to say you're giving them the wind, but you were, you had to risk the wind a little bit more than I can elk hunting. Cause elk hunting, I can hear a bull beagling. I'm just going to walk a 90 degree, you know, uh, I'm going to walk 90 degrees to my left and get the wind better. So I can, you know, play it right where I'm not worried about what's behind me or what may be in the adjacent bedding area, whatnot. So with, with that all said, uh, my understanding or just from what I've read, maybe even research that you've done is that, you know, a deer sense of smell can be anywhere from 250 to hundred times more acute than, than human smells. So you know, right off the bat. You're not going to get away with much, but I'm going to, I'm going to have multiple questions here, but like what smells matter was, was always, you know, I'm, I'm curious about, is it human odor? Is it, um, you know the the laundry detergent I wash my clothes with? is it the breakfast burrito I may have spilled on my hunting pants that morning on the way to the stand? Um, w- w- in your opinion, do to types of smells matter and and is there any research to support you know what smells matter?
2: That 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 last little part you said there is is tough. Um, I would say there is there's research to support that absolutely smell is going to matter, but it, but it's really difficult for us to disentangle a, exactly what that smell is. What you know? Why is this particular molecule going to elicit a response in a deer that another scent molecule won't? And one example that, that I can give you that, for me, opened my eyes into how complicated this is, is uh, Steve and I did, did an experiment here at Mississippi State where we worked with the chemists with all the sophisticated uh, equipment where they could t- they could detect the the acronym they use, or VOCs, Volatile Organic Compounds, that we emit. And we would put on this suit and they would extract the, the air that came off of us. And, and it was literally over 100 di- different compounds, and it could vary from individual to individual as well. And uh, that just I just remembered something I saw on the news a couple weeks ago regarding um, this new research that is showing something humans have noticed for a long time. You know, Jason, why is it whenever you and I are together, why are mosquitoes all over you, but they're not as much on me?
1: Exactly. I, well, I'm, in yep. this...
2: This, this same kind of study, they actually were able to isolate it down to a particular compound. And this particular genome, this expression of this gene in this person, they manufacture more of this compound and the mosquitoes queued in on it. Now that kind of got off track a little bit, but the bottom line is that it's hard to, to define what is human scent. Because it's a whole bunch of different compounds. And is there any way to truly and effectively suppress or eliminate all those different scents that a deer can detect? I can't say from a research perspective yes or no, but I find it very, very unlikely that that you can do that. And another example, Jason, uh, this seems to resonate with people very well when I talk to them, is... If we want to compare a deer's nose to a dog's nose, which I think is a really good comparison. We all know a bloodhound and how how good they are. Um, but, But we have dogs now like cadaver dogs. We have dogs that can, at least there's a lot of research showing, they can tell if someone has Parkinson's disease or not. We, we have and i know this intimately in my family there there are service dogs jason that could be in the room with you right now and if you were type 1 diabetic they could tell if your blood glucose level was above or below a threshold now to me <laughs> if we're t- how how do you completely cover that up I, I just yeah. don't think you can but what I think you can do are, the odds you put the odds in your favor you know of course you don't want to be eating a uh, bacon and you know sausage biscuit and smoking a cigar and have diesel fuel on your boots and all that kind of stuff um yeah. but it's, it's it's really hard to manage for that
1: yeah and so it's just to be over and that's where i kind of got to is is just being overcritical on sense like just i may never know you know, in in the you know heat of the moment, what matters or what doesn't. But if I control and take care of as much of that, you know, so when you you get back to the house, you take all your hunting clothes off before you cook breakfast, you know, and and just try to manage it to the highest level possible. I figure that's the best bet because you know you're always yeah. gonna have to breathe, and if that's what they're picking up, you're you're gonna be, you know, you're gonna get picked off, and um, you know, and that kind of leads on to the better or, or not the better the, the 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 safer play is just make sure that the wind's always in the right the right place and your stands in the right place. Um, and, and make sure that they don't have a chance to smell you, um, for sure. That, that's
2: the, that's the proactive thing that you can control is positioning yep. yourself in the wind. Yeah.
1: Um, one last question on on scent, and and I know this is a very <laughs> a very nuanced question because you know a one to two mile an hour wind is different than a seven to ten versus a, a eighteen to twenty. We talked about this a little bit before we we got hit the record button, um, you know, out West, as I'm approaching elk, I'm always wondering like if I need to cheat the wind or, or give them the wind completely Is a 500 yard loop, good enough Is a 750 yard loop, good enough. Like when can they smell me? Is there any data that kind of supports that? And I know it's going to be variable on the wind, you know, the concentration of the smell. So it's like, yeah, you know, everything I'm asking an answer for gets very, very complex. Cause there's so many variables and, and you know, each one has its own. Um, you know, I guess it's probably weighted differently as well. Yeah. You know, in that, yeah. that answer.
2: Um, uh, there's no research that I'm aware of that that can answer that question definitively. But but I'll, I'll give you my opinion, the way I think about it. I think about it as um, even though it's microscopic and we can't see it and it's hard for even for us to comprehend it. But I look at it as uh, for that deer, you know, stimulus and response there is probably has to be a, a threshold number of particles to elicit a, a deer saying, I got to get out of here. This is very, very dangerous for me. Um, and so, you know, I'm not a mule deer hunter. I'm, I'm a whitetail hunter. If, if you hunt a deer down here long enough, you've definitely seen those situations where, like you're saying, the wind is swirling and a deer comes in, whether they're 50 yards away or 150, but they caught a whiff. They, they know. it swirled by. And I, I look at that, Jason, as there was a particle or two or a hundred or however you would enumerate that. But there was enough to say, you know, I need, I need to, to be careful here. Something's going on. And then they get that next whiff and it exceeded that threshold where they said, I got to get out of here
1: yep yeah, yep yeah. or the number I've, I've smelt it once now i've smelt it twice i'm i'm out yeah,
2: and, um, yeah.
1: That, that makes tons of sense. so i i'm gonna ask I, I i lied there a little bit i'm gonna ask you one more question on scent which if you were let you know dr bronson strickland's heading to his stand and, and you've got <laughs> you're going to hunt target buck number a but target buck b might be downwind of how you have to get into your stand what what would be the safe distance i'm going to put it this way just like what are you going to do how far away are you going to stay but in order to hunt buck a you're going to have to let your wind go to to be on your approach um what in your mind what could you get away with you know for that that scent hitting you know that that bedding area or where you think that bucks hold up at
2: i i don't think it would be a a couple hundred yards i I would want it to be a thousand or more away yeah just
1: once again, just play it on that conservative side, do a little extra right. effort, a little farther walking just to make sure that that when so yeah not I'm not putting you on record, but over a thousand yards away, you feel like you may be safe, um, you know, and it sounds like I wouldn't even put a number on it as far as possible. you're gonna stay away yeah. as far as possible as you can there you as go. long as yeah yeah, as long as it doesn't you know turn your your half mile hike into the stand into a five mile hike, you know within reason, you're gonna stay as far away as possible,
2: exactly, yeah. Okay. and make as little noise as possible the list goes on and on yeah okay
1: mm-hmm. um we talked about the rut a little bit we mentioned some you know 900 yards versus 1500 yards um, you know we know that deer move you know october november they're moving 33 percent i think some of your research says 33 percent of the time during the day during lockdown they're moving 40 percent of their movements during the day uh, but we noticed and i come back to my uh, people are probably getting tired of me of my whitetail hunt in Kansas but it's what I know it's 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 my experience so I'm I'm going to dive back into it um, you know he's got cameras spread out all over his you know thousand acres a couple different farms and you know he may have one camera that only gets a picture of one buck you know that buck doesn't leave his core area of I don't know 100 200 300 acres. I'm assuming you know he's or even tighter than that because the farm's bigger than that. And he's got cameras more, you know, uh, closely closely spaced out than that. But then there may be a buck that is on all 10 of his cameras and all of his neighbor's 20 cameras and you know the, and the next neighbor's over his cameras. What what leads to that? That I I guess. Uh, you know, habit or what leads to to that deer's movement patterns um, for one buck to sit still and one buck to travel all over and then i've got some follow-up questions uh, on that as well
2: well i i don't think we know the the answer but but we know that it exists we, we know that there's a lot of uh variation uh in how they move and the area they cover and how often and we, we kind of call it personality we call it, you know bucks have, have different personalities and some of it, Jason can be. Some are just very aggressive. Some of them are always out. They're always looking for a fight. They're always looking for a breeding opportunity. Some of them, and this can be mature bucks as well. Some of them just are not programmed that way. Some of them are just gonna. We call them Norm. If I'm showing my age here, but cheers, Norm. I mean, every Friday night, you know where Norm's <laughs> gonna be. And there are are some bucks like that. And to me, we got to think back into. But the currency for an animal is is an evolutionary term we called fitness. Fitness is basically for you to win in Mother Nature, you got to live longer or you got to have more offspring. And so I think you have this diversity of buck personalities where some of them are going to be very aggressive about breeding opportunities. And some of them are going to be more conservative and are going to stay at home and stay close to cover and just try to live longer. They, their game is the long game of, I may have less breeding opportunities per year, but I'm going to live till I'm eight years old. This other little whippersnapper, you know, he's going to maximize as many breeding opportunities as he can, but he dies at three and a half. So both of those are acceptable solutions.
1: Yeah, And, and so, you know, without really knowing why, you know, maybe it's, it's just intrinsic and, and genetic a little bit, and it's just who they are. Um, is there any any data or, you know, from your own experience, have you seen that change with maturity? Like, well, that, you know, you mentioned whippersnapper in the, in the last example, does that deer settle down as he moves up the pecking order and maybe knows he'll be able to breed those does close? Or is there any correlation between maturity and how, how far a
2: deer wants to go? Um, we don't have good data to, to assess that simply because we, we don't have enough, the, the longevity of a deer retaining a collar, at least the way we do studies is you get about a year, sometimes a year and a half out of a collar and the battery's exhausted and, and we drop it off. The, I think the best explanation I can give is, is like in our deer pens, in our research facility, we, we will see some of the aggressiveness change over time. We will see sometimes that a, a buck at middle age that was just really, really aggressive by the time he becomes mature, it's almost like he settles down. It's almost like he realizes the the risk I am taking, and every time a buck locks up for a fight, for example, they're they're taking a risk with their life. Uh, they're taking a risk with getting an antler. You see it all the time. An antler in the eyeball, a wound in the neck, and so it's like some of these bucks just learn over time that the rut's not here. There's not an estrus doe right in front of me. I, I'm not going to I'm not going to run all over the place and pick fights with everybody like some of these other bucks do. That, that makes a ton of ton of sense there. Um, moving on to my my final question before we get
1: into the vocalizations a little bit, um, you know, looking at a piece of property aside from seclusion and absence of human pressure, which in my quick research. Um, is maybe the, the number one factor to keeping, you know, bigger, more mature deer on your property. What do bucks need to get big and stay big and, and, and stay on your property? Um, you know, for elk out west, we always talk about when we're looking to find elk, we're looking, they need to have food, they need to have security, you know, and usually north-facing benches and timber or brush, and they need to have access to water every day. How do you relate that to like the whitetails and, and where, um, you know, not where, what you need to uh, keep them on your place?
2: The Essentials um, f- Food, of course, food is really, really important until you get to the rut and food is is less important. Um, I would say dur- during that time of the year, it's kind of like what we talked about earlier. It's something you can't really manage for, but they're they're roaming the landscape looking for for breeding opportunities. Um, but but one thing that we neglect a lot is is cover. Is having really good cover. And so, you know, I'll get an email or a call and I'll get the question of what do I have to do on my property? You know, my small acreage, my 50, 250 to keep and, you know, hold more dear on my property. And, and the way I always end up is you need to go to Google Earth or some program like that and you need to zoom out. And you need to figure out what is the most limiting factor on the landscape, not on your property, adjacent. What is limiting? Is food limiting? If so, then you can be the destination food property around you. But just as easily, think of the Midwest, it could be cover. You know, so if you just have this wide open landscape and you have all this food, well, you need some cover adjacent to it to hold deer on your property. Um, And then once you address those, don't mess it up by uh, disturbing the deer all the time. Be sensible about about how you hunt and how often you hunt. Don't just go in there and blow them up every afternoon or they're going to leave your property or certainly not move around during daylight hours.
1: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And coming from out west, you know, we've got it's brushy. We've logged everything, you know, three times now. You got stumps, you've got brush, you've got blackberry brush. You get into the creek bottoms, we got devil's clubs, you know, whatever it may be. There's just we have brush and and everything for days. And so heading out, um, you know, to the Midwest, you know, to to realize that uh, a little cedar thicket that created some sort of like thermal barrier for those deer, and, and we hunted very close to to a cedar um, thicket there, and you know, coming from out west, it's like, why would these deer want to be in there? But you realize really quick that, you know, when it was eight to 15 degrees, those bucks were moving some of those deer into that. And they wanted to be in there during the middle of the day when they were going to bed down so they could have an extra tenor. And we walked the farm and walked through a couple of them just looking at new properties and and just kind of doing the walk around, getting the whole, you know, first whitetail experience and, um, you know, just seeing the amount of trails and, and the activity on the property going in and out of there at different times of the day was eye opening. And then, I can remember walking through, we walked from, you know, one, I guess would be ag section to another, but there was a, we were in bluff country and we had to maybe drop a couple hundred feet down through a Creek and you know, out West, we clear cut everything. We, we cut it off at the stump. We either turn it into lumber or we send it overseas as export logs. And I looked and and on this property, Randy had cut everything at eye height and just let it lay, and it just created this tangled mess. And you know, he, he explained hinge cutting to me, which coming from out west made zero sense at all. Like well, that tree was worth money, you know. And he's like, "Well, that tree's worth more to the big bucks than it is, you know, in a, in a sawmill." And so, you quickly start to look at, you know, all right, don't go in here. But then this is like that big buck, you know, bedding area. They can be secluded. There's no reason for anybody outside of hunting season to ever go into here. Um, you know, it's literally set aside for, for bucks, um, you know, and then fast forwarding to a different piece we hunted, uh, you know, he left a a 20 acre circle between his thick timber, his open oaks, his food plot of CRP and, um. I was amazed at how many deer would pop up at three 30 in the afternoon out of that stuff. Like they didn't want to go bed in the thick brush. They didn't want to go bed, you know, up in the timber. Um, they were just going out in the middle of CRP. And so it quickly started to like, there's no right answer. Um, you know, aside from maybe leaving these things alone and not bother them all year or bothering them, you know, pre hunting season, during hunting season. Um, you know, there's a, there's a security they, they, they want, you know, like you said thermal thermal breaks from from cedars and and, and it kind of opened up my eyes it, it you have to think a little bit more about what those deer need you know right and, and i guess as an aggregate they they don't just need one thing they want a. it seems to be a combination to me at least that that they want a little bit of everything
2: Yeah. And think about the adjacency as well. Um, You know, where can I put this cover relative to where food is going to be? Think about your hunting strategy. Am I going to be able to get in and out of being in between food and cover? Can I get in and out undetected? I mean, there's a, um, you can be a lot more intentional uh, and, and successful with where you put cover Than I think a, a lot of people give credit for I think we give so much attention To the food plot Where we're putting the food plot, etc I think you need to put just as much Of where you are intentionally putting cover And it's just going to increase your success Hunting Hunting
0: and you can find what you need in-store or online. Stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts today or visit us at O'ReillyAuto.com slash eater. That's O'ReillyAuto.com slash eater. There's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight. Find your next fishing trip made easy on FishingBooker.com and experience the magic of the Sunshine State or any other destination on your fishing bucket list.
1: We've all seen plenty of gadgets and fads come and go, but here's one product that stood the test of time. Seafoam Motor Treatment. Lots of hunters and anglers know that seafoam helps engines run better and last longer. It's really simple. When you pour it in your gas tank, seafoam cleans harmful fuel deposits that cause engine problems. I'm talking common stuff like hard starts, rough engine performance, or lost fuel economy. Seafoam is an easy way to prevent or overcome these problems. Just pour a can in your gas tank and let it clean your fuel system. You probably know someone who has used a can of sea foam to get their truck or boat going again. People everywhere rely on sea foam to keep their trucks, boats, and small engines running the way that they should the entire season. Help your engine run better and last longer, pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more. Okay. Now we're going to kind of close this out with, you know, what, what I'm interested in and, and my job design deer calls is just vocalizations and, and your, your opinion, what you know about deer vocalizations, I'll um, will add in bits and pieces from what I seen in the stand. Um, but go through like a deer's vocabulary at a, at a high level, and then we'll break it down into, you know, grunts, rattling bleats, in your opinion, what those means and how we can you know, what they mean to the deer and then how we can maybe use those, um, in hunting situations.
2: Um, f- from a, a hunting situation, you know, there, there are a lot of vocalizations and I, I didn't do my homework to rattle off all 12 oh, of them or whatever, yeah, no, but no, the, no, you're the fine. ones that are, 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 you know, most meaningful, of course, distress. You know, there, there's a problem. They they blow, you know, really hard, uh, and that's just to alert everybody something's wrong and get you know get the heck out of town. Uh, grunting or the tending grunt is the one we think most commonly, and that is just communication. Uh, a buck is tending a doe. He's he's on the ch- on on the, the chase or the pursuit, and then more of a territoriality part of that is in the grunt snore at wheeze, and that is more of a you know, hey buddy, we're about to tangle here and I'm just, I'm letting you know, you better back off real quick. Um, I've had, so, so, so there's no doubt Jason that grunting can work. Um, we wouldn't have this industry of producing grunt calls if it never worked, but everybody that has used them enough has also noticed, um, it works sometimes and it doesn't work others. And I, the way i think about it anyway is it's going to depend on um number one and this seems really silly to say this but did the buck even hear it so the, bu- the buck has to hear the grunt before it can respond to the grunt and, and and then number two it's probably going to depend on its mood or physiological state as to whether it's going to respond so everybody that's grunted a deer has grunted and you like why in the world it didn't even pay me any attention and you can have that exact same scenario two days later with a different buck, and they come charging in. Yeah. Um, it, it, it's really hard to determine exactly what was going on there, but w- we see the same thing with rattling as well. It, it can be... Um, I, I was very... I'm sorry, I'm kind of going down a, a side road here. No, 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 we're good. We're good. I, I, I was very lucky to work with uh, uh, a, a buddy of mine uh, named Mick Hellickson years ago. This would have been in the... Golly, uh, mid '90s, and to to my knowledge, it has been the only kind of scientifically studied uh, rattling experiment. And we went to this, this wildlife refuge that has these observation towers and an even buck age structure. And that's very important. It was a classic South Texas deer herd where you had just as many bucks were mature as or immature. And we looked at pre-rut, rut, post-rut, et cetera, and different rattling sequences and so forth. And, and Jason, the, the single most important thing about a buck coming in and responding to you was, did the buck hear you? or not. So within, within where you're at, there is a certain radius around you that there has to number one, be a buck to hear you rattling. And then number two, are they in the mood, you know, to, to respond?
1: Yeah. And that was one of the things I sat in the stand, what I would consider, you know, similar age class deer, you know, similar level of dominance or same level on the pecking order on the same trail. So whatever they think they're smelling as they go by, I could grunt at one, And he, he heard me, he'd pick his head up. You know, I always, always, that's, I guess my indicator is he snaps his head up and looks at your direction. If not, I assume he didn't hear me. And then he would put, pick his head up and go right back down to sniffing the the next deer, three and a half years old, same age deer gets to the same spot. I grunt. he picks his head up and turns and walks six yards under the stand. And I'm like, gosh, dang it. I don't know why. And maybe we never will know why. It's just that first buck didn't have, uh, you know, enough want to come back and, and, you know, pick up the trail that I was on you know you got to assume that's what they're thinking that I was on you know a doe or grunting Um, you know that didn't work and then there were also times where mature deer we got some mature deer to stop and look and they would kind of angle our way and then it seemed to work better on those three and a half to four and a half year old deer if we were dealing with a five or six and a half they weren't near as interested in coming now I know that might just be a coincidence on this hunt but it seemed like it was easier to to grunt in those three and a half to four and a half year old bucks um and yeah i i don't know i i always just wonder why and how come but you know similar to a lot of our discussion today it may just be that deer and, and what that deer wants to do and you know if he's that bully buck that wants to come try to you know whoop my butt yeah. to, to take my doe versus the other one didn't have that much you know, interest in, in in a walk up or a fight or anything like that. I,
2: I I think it it depended on that Buck's personality, you know, is he a lover or a fighter or a dancer or whatever? And and then did you catch him in the in the right mood? You know, is he ready to jump up and come fight? And some are and, and some aren't. And you and I have been in the exact same experiences, whether it be a grunt call or rattling antlers, where you are simultaneously looking at two different bucks and they're about the same distance away so it's not because they didn't hear and one of them lifts its head or just twitches his ear and for the most part ignores you and another one picks his head up and comes running in and I don't know. That's what makes it fun. I, yeah, I don't we,
1: know. We got to hunt out of a ground blind a couple of days and you know, we, we do the Let's get up, make sure there's no deer around before we grunt or rattle. And we do our little secret, you know, sequence. And there would be times where you would grunt and you would have a buck just come in real slow. You could see him out. Maybe your blind side window, you come in real slow. There were other times, and I'm using these simultaneously grunts or rattling there. Were other times we'd smash the horns together or grunt and you would have a deer come fly into the woods. And once again, you know, we're trying to figure out like, does it matter how hot of does are in the area? If he's just completely looking for one, I'll probably go to my grave, never knowing the answer, but it it, isn't it, you know, whether it's an engineer or me just wanting to know, so I can be a more educated hunter. It's like, well, why did one deer, you know, take his time very cautiously come in. And then why did that other deer like charge the blind, you know, come flying by at five yards and run past us. And, um, yeah, i don't know um if if you will ever have the answer it sounds like
2: the probably no we'll probably never zip that up 99 percent, knowing the reason why but um here's a a cool little story It's very similar to what you're describing but again with with rattling is in in that experiment jason we had of course we did this for days and days and weeks and weeks and replicated what we were doing over and over and just what you're you're describing we, we have some bucks that completely ignore what you're doing. We, we have some bucks that come charging in, and it's kind of like some of these old videos where the guy's on the ground rattling, and the next thing he knows, he's getting knocked over by a buck, you know, just on top of him. But, but then you also, on the exact same rattling sequence where, you know, to your left, this buck came charging in, over to your right, when you're done rattling, you look and there one had tiptoed. You know, one wasn't going to come charging in. They come circling around. They're just very cautious. And then I had one example I still vividly remember. And again, this was in Texas. You could see a long ways, but I, I see a buck about three, maybe 400 yards away. And I'm wearing these antlers out, you know, breaking a sweat, going as hard as I can. And while I was rattling, you had to be making the sound. While you were rattling, that buck was coming towards you. But part of our protocol, our experimental protocol, was you rattled for X amount, you you didn't for X amount. You pick it up, and when you would put the antlers down on your lap, that buck instantaneously would stop coming there was no memory in his head like i'm going to keep going there as long as the stimulus of the rattling antlers was taken away he quit and in three rattling sequences i brought him from that far away three <laughs> different times he would stop and just go back to feeding pick him up rattle again here he comes again but because he had to close the distance of 400 yards you know it it took that long
1: yeah that's very similar to, to predator calling bears they get they get uh, uninterested very quickly, so you have to stay on the call forever. So it sounds real yeah. similar. Like they they would move when you were um, you know rattling, but but not. So uh, one last thing on calling, and then we'll, we'll we'll wrap this up and put a bow on it. Um, grunting. So in your opinion, I'll just maybe you can either agree with me or disagree with me. When it, when we got there, you know, Parrish and Randy, like we're not ever gonna grunt at a buck that's on lockdown or that's chasing. They're like, we don't call to that deer. Um, they don't like to call first thing in the morning. So we were doing morning and, and evening sits. You know, some people don't like to hunt mornings at certain times or only hunt ag at night, but we were, we only had a certain amount of time from out of state. We had to be in the tree at all times. So, um, you know, we tried not to grunt on a buck that was locked down or chasing or chasing hard. And then um, we didn't typically grunt in the morning. Would you say grunting every 30 minutes is, is about right if, if nothing's around? My only concern is when I looked at the pace that these bucks were running, if I didn't say anything, if I just observed, that deer would be out of earshot. Like you said, the most important thing is he hears me. So then my mind triggers to I should be calling maybe every 10 minutes because that buck's going to leave leave my you know radius that, that he can hear me. What In your opinion, what would be the, and I know this may, may be more of your hunting opinion and not necessarily research-based,
2: but what's the right, the, you know, cold calling, cold grunting, I guess. Um, yeah, and you're right. Yeah, the sitting research base, this is just biologists that hunts opinion. But 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 I think the the single most important thing is, as you mentioned, is, you know, a buck's got to hear it. And and I'm not going to sit up there and just wear a grunt call out the whole, you know, every minute. You know, I, I think that's just disturbance. In a, I think everything's getting alerted to your presence. But, but I would want to think of, of, like the example you mentioned earlier, is that every 15 to, at the most, 30 minutes, I want the opportunity that however, whatever that distance is, based on the configuration of the land, uh, the wind, noise, etc., I, I want to be sure that if there is a deer within, say, 200 yards of me, is that, and I, maybe I don't see him, that he can hear me. So I'm thinking probably every 15 to 20 minutes, I'm going to do that a couple times and just see if I get a response.
1: Yeah. That, that's kind of what we did. And we kind of rotated our grunting versus rattling, like, you know, maybe a buck's more interested in rattling versus grunting. So whether now you're only rattling every 30 to 45 minutes and grunting every 30 to 45, mixing them in, it seemed to be a good mix and it kept, you know, enough action or enough deer coming to the, to the location to keep us interested in and, and not get, get bored. Um, right. Uh, rattling the type of, Time of year? Are you rattling from you know start of pre-rut all the way through you know even post-rut? Um, is that is that the ideal time? You're gonna get deer to respond to that then?
2: Pre-rut number one, post-rut number two. Peak of the rut is all about yeah, it's all yeah. about being lucky that a, a doe a buck tending a doe is, is has finished breeding. And he's on the search and, and the, the probability of you catching him then is just less, versus in the pre rut when all the bucks are roaming and looking and searching. You just have greater odds. Um bleats, where do they have their place in calls,
1: or should we just leave our bleat calls at home all the time, or is there a place where they can be effective and how a,
2: a doe would you know naturally use that sound? Um yeah, it it definitely works, and uh, I I've I've used it and gotten a response, uh, like a lot of people have, in terms of a doe coming in and charging in. It, it's just it, difficult, at least for me, and maybe I'm not a good enough hunter um, where I could manage that and try to get a a shot undetected. But to me, it's just that the the doe is coming in on high high alert and is. Focused in where that sound is coming from, so trying to get a bow drawn back is difficult.
1: Yeah, uh, I, but it can be effective, I, sure. I had about an hour lull on uh, the day I actually killed my buck, um, and and just bleated. I'd grunted a couple times with nothing. So I'm just gonna switch it up. I got the call in my in my pocket, and whether it was that or not, or whether they were already coming, that's the hard part. You don't know if they were already on their way. Uh, you know, two does showed up. Uh, you know, five seven minutes later, and they had four. You know, two bucks each on them, and it's like, well. I don't know if it worked or not, but I'm not gonna not do it. You know, we'll have to test it more in the future. But yeah. you know, those does did show up. They did turn, and it took about a half hour for the bucks to finally come back. But um, you know, bleats we we don't use them a whole lot. We didn't use them a whole lot, but we did use them. You know, just a few times to see how um, and when we were trying to get you know does to come to come to our location. And then that last sound that we're we're gonna use in hunting um, that snort wheeze. Are you gonna load that up more in the pre rut um, and avoid it during lockdown? And and are you gonna come back to it in the post rut?
2: You know that that's one I've never never used before. Um, I've I've seen it used before, and it it can be effective. And I would think I would. Um, I think that might be more of a, a post rut for me doing that. Um, I probably have to put more thought into that than I am now, but uh i I guess my logic is that during the pre-rut bucks are just moving around more often and if they get challenged at that time uh maybe they're just going to move on and keep looking versus uh in the peak of the rut or post-rut they might be more willing to accept the challenge and fight but i don't know jason that's a good question
1: yeah i i know you know just and like i say you can read anything on the internet so whether you've proofed it or not but people that you know i I know they use it more pre-rut and i know you know the guys that i was hunting with in in the midwest they were like ah we don't snort wheeze during the middle of the rut and um you know which it sounds like you don't do a whole lot in the middle of the rut, like you said besides get lucky and hope you just put your stand in the right place where um you know either he's chasing the doe around or he's returning from chasing the doe around and passing through trying to find a new one All right. Well, I really appreciate having you on. And in closing, um, Doctor Strickland, I'm gonna I'm gonna leave you with this one. If if you could give advice to hunters by using you know a deer's biology or their instinct against them to find success, what would that one tip be?
2: Wow, that's uh, that's a good one. Um, probably a pretty boring answer here. I would probably <laughs> just go back to my to my fundamentals of uh don't disturb don't constantly d- disturb where where deer are bedded um think strategically about where cover is at think strategically about where food is at uh use the wind try to get get in and out um so i, I guess in terms of the biology against them it would be their stomach
1: <laughs> <laughs> that, that makes a ton of sense so I'm going to, I was going to have you close on that, but now I've got another question that popped up. Um, would you say just as far as like even checking cell cameras, like that deer may not see you, may not hear you on that day, but he may pick up, a, you know, as you said, one or two or 10 molecules, whatever that number is, that's, that's a low amount. And it just puts him on alert. Are you saying just completely, you know, we should be using cell cameras, like unless it's some farm or ag that has to happen, you know, harvest, we should just kind of leave those things alone as much as possible.
2: Well, I I guess I would say that um, disturbance isn't just a gunshot, you know, disturbance is your present, your scent, the sound of your ATV, the truck door, you know, I think it's though all the collection of those events over time, alert deer at a population scale to something's changed, something's different. And so, you know, I'm still going to run a a trail camera and check it throughout the year, but I think you just have to treat those as almost like a hunt. Um, I don't think everybody can run 20 cellular activated cameras, you know, but I think it's not going in there and checking it every third day. It might be every couple weeks looking at it and and even treating the wind approaching your camera setup, much like a hunting stand.
1: Yeah, you don't go in the middle of the morning when he might be on that plotter, and that you go in the middle of the day where you think he's moved off, and yeah, that, right. Just taking all of those precautions, like you said, make sure you got the right wind to even check your camera, um, all that stuff uh, seems to just add up, and and just like everything we've talked about, I think it it's a decision on uh, you know you have to weigh the benefit versus the detriment, right? Um, you know, mm-hmm. I looked at like the hinge cutting, uh, of one of these areas, like you're going to go into a bucks area that he's probably already using, but does hinge cutting make it that much better? Um, is it worth the, the week or two of, of hinge cutting, you know, all of these Oaks and, you know, some of that stuff is what I'm still trying to get my, you know, my head around, like what's worth it. What's not, what's, you know, what could push that buck out of there versus what may, you know, bring two more bucks into the area it is, is I think that's that game that everybody plays trying to keep big bucks, grow big bucks. Um, you know,
2: yeah, yeah and, and I think like the example you gave, a, a buck may be using it, but you want him to use it differently. So the buck may be using that woodlot by just passing through, but, but you want him to bed right there, or you want multiple deer to bed right there. That's where being manipulative like that in hinge cutting or or just cutting trees could help a lot. Yeah. Yeah. and, and there could be th- a short-term negative effect there could be a short-term negative effect but years later it's going to be positive
1: yeah play play the long game and um, right you know get you'll get the benefit out of it so i really appreciate having you here uh dr bronson strickland uh, a wealth of knowledge i probably could have talked to you all day uh, about whitetails but i appreciate the time you, you gave us and uh, good luck now that your season's are just getting going down there
2: Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. Time to get out and hunt some more. Thanks so much for the opportunity. Enjoy talking to you.